0: Good morning again everyone and uh, and wonderful to see you and I pray that uh, this morning's message as we continue on part two of the May Day series, uh, the series titled Imminent, Imminent and of course we're speaking about the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. The, um, The title of the sermon this morning is, The Bride of the Son is not appointed to the wrath of the Father. The Bride of the son is not appointed to the wrath of the father it 's making a specific point clearly and but it's also it's it's a it's quite an involved message there is a, there's a lot of scripture here and you 'll see them uh, annotated in your in your newsletters um, i'm not going to read all all of them as I mentioned earlier but and the sermon's not going to be any longer than it usually is, so you, you, can, you can be encouraged a little bit with that. But I pray that it is a real journey for you. I pray that it, it shouldn't be bumpy, so you don't need tight seat belts. but it should be indeed a journey. And the point that I'm obviously going to be making is that the bride of the Son, the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the church, is not subject to the wrath of the Father. Just that statement alone should be enough to be able to help you realise and see that the church itself is not going to be here during that time, the terrible time that's going to be coming out on the earth. In order to do that properly, though, I need to be able to demonstrate to you something with regards to the wrath that the Bible actually speaks about. So before we do that, I want to enter into a word, a word of prayer. So let's, let's do that first. Heavenly Father, it's, it's your word That we see, dear Lord, and as we read it on a regular basis and as we see the scriptures come together in such clarity, as we look at the entire Bible as a whole and we see that here a little and there a little comes together the wonderful precepts of the living word of the living God. I ask and pray, dear Lord, that you would be with me as I preach this sermon this morning. That it would not be tedious to the hearers, but it would encourage them, that it would excite them to the wonderful hope that we have in Christ and the joy that we have to look forward to. But also, dear Lord, the urgency that we have at this time to live for Christ, that we may be a blessing to the world. I pray, dear Father, please be with the hearers. Let those things that are being preached, especially those that are matters of truth, sink down into their ears and into their hearts, that they may believe that they may be encouraged, that they may glorify Christ and live worthy of the calling that they have received. I thank you, dear Lord, for this time. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. 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 Multitude of places in the Old and the New Testament, we see that there is to come an expected time where God is going to be pouring out his wrath upon the earth. We know that when the Lord Jesus Christ came, he came as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. We know that when he came and went to the Father, this is a time when the wonderful grace of Christ is preached to all the world. He came not to condemn the world, but that, he, that through him the world might have life and might have life everlasting. That's what we are to preach. That is the time that we're living in at the moment. But as the word of God is continually being rejected by many, as the word of God is not even being read by Christians today, nor even known where the word of God is today, we're seeing the the world abandon all truth. It's abandoned foundations for truth. And it's now every man is doing that which is right in his own eyes. And as he's doing that, we're seeing everything unfold. and, And it's unfolding very rapidly. During this time... The last 2,000 years, there has been grace for the world. There's been the hope of salvation for the world. But there is coming a day where God will say, enough, enough. And that day is evident within the scriptures. What we also see incredibly in the scriptures is that it's not just that the day is set to come at some you know, random time in the, in the world. In the Old Testament it was identified as coming immediately after the presence and the revelation of the Messiah himself. Christ comes and immediately afterwards, there is the judgment of God, the judgment upon the heathen world. Jesus came to his own, but his own received him not, did they? But the Old Testament presents that when Jesus came for the Jews, because it's their Messiah that was expected. And all those who believed in Christ at that time, there was meant to be the culmination of events immediately straight after. But what, what have we had? We've had 2,000 years and nothing of that has come apart. But what has come? Well, the church has come. Well, the church wasn't in the Old Testament. Matter of fact, the prophets in the Old Testament don't see the church. We don't see a picture of that. You've got an illustration in your, in your newsletters to actually see what the prophets could see. In the Bible, the church itself is, seems to be in this valley, it's not evident in the Old Testament. It's not there, and we see that clearly evident, and there's one passage in particular. We see this all the way throughout, but one passage does a good job with it for another reason. I'll explain that to you in a, in a moment. Turn your Bible to Isaiah 61, Isaiah 61. Jesus preached, well. He read Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 in the Gospel of Luke. If you're diligent, you can put a finger there too in the Gospel of Luke chapter 4. But we're reading Isaiah 61 verses 1 to 2 and we'll reference Luke 4. Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. Those of you that recall Luke chapter 4 you also recognize something very interesting about it because in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, the Lord Jesus stands up in the synagogue and he reads this text, but he doesn't conclude it. He doesn't conclude it. As the Lord reads Luke chapter 4, verses 18 to 19, we see that he stops abruptly in the middle of verse 2, of verse 2 of the Isaiah passage. He stops in the middle of that and then he closed the book, he sat down and he began to say, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Luke 4 verse 21. What was fulfilled was the coming of Christ and not yet the day of vengeance of our God. The New Testament shows a full stop where Jesus ended his quote, but the Old Testament has a comma. It's that comma that has lasted the better part of 2,000 years the day of vengeance. That day of vengeance is that day of wrath. It's the day of darkness and not light. Amos says that it will be a day that is if a man did flee from a lion, a bear met him. And if he went into a house and he leaned his hand on a wall, a serpent bit him. There is going to be no escaping that day when that day comes. That's how it's described by Amos. Men will go into the mountains and will say rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Revelation 6.16, you can see also Isaiah 2.19, Hosea 10.8, Luke 23.30. This day that's coming is a day of great evil that is yet to come upon the earth. It's a day, a time and an hour that has never been before and will never be again. It will be a day when men seek death and shall not find it. They shall desire to die, but death shall flee from them, Revelation 9.6. Fire will burn up all the field, man and beast, Revelation chapter 8. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood, Joel 2.31, Acts 2.20. It's described as being black as sackcloth of hair when the sixth seal is opened, Revelation 6.12. There is going to be quaking in the earth, in the entire earth. When God arises, the Bible says to shake terribly the earth. Isaiah 19 and Isaiah 21, Isaiah 219, Isaiah 221. So severe is going to be the movement of the earth that it is described from God's perspective by the prophet saying that it shall reel to and fro like a drunkard. This is the earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard. Isaiah twenty four twenty, Peace is going to be taken away from the earth and men will kill one another. Revelation 6, 4. All the grass of the earth, all the grass of the earth is going to be burnt up and a third part of all vegetation will be burnt up. Revelation 8, 7. No point being a greenie in that day. There's going to be extreme Famine. Extreme monetary inflation, runaway pestilence and plagues. The passage speaks of the one who sat on the pale horse of the apocalypse, whose name itself was death and hell followed with him, Revelation 6.8. A third of all the drinkable water on earth, both in rivers and in fountains, are going to be made bitter. They're going to be undrinkable, Revelation 8.8. A third of all sea-dwelling creatures are going to die, Revelation 8.9. The passage yet tells of an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet, which are yet to sound. Revelation 8.13. Beloved, all this has occurred. All this has occurred during a specific seven-year period of tribulation on the earth, and we're not even at the bad part yet. We're not even at the bad part yet. Jesus says that this time of God's wrath is likened to the days of Noah in Matthew 24, 37 and Luke 17, 26. Both in that it will come suddenly upon the world, but also that the manifestations on the earth are going to have its behind-the-scenes precedent remembered during the time of the flood. What, What do I mean by that? Just as in the days of Noah, where men were killing one another, violence covered all the earth, the Bible refers to. Just as in those days, there was a spiritual behind-the-scenes working of princes and principalities. Those that were there at the Bible study on Wednesday night remembered we spoke about princes and principalities, these beings that are behind the scenes of governments all over the world, of nations all over the world. These angelic realm that's actually governing things that are going on within the earth. These are princes and principalities. They are doing their work. And they were there during that time. And the devils that were on the earth during that time made havoc of the earth. And it's the Apostle Peter who reveals this account. He speaks of the devilish horde who caused mischief on the earth in those days as being, listen to the words, in chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, in 2 Peter 2, 4. And which are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. In Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. It's these same angels that Jude refers to as having kept not their first estate. But God has reserved them in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day in Jude 6. This is the day of wrath. This is the day of vengeance of our God. This is the time of trouble that is going to come upon the earth. Pretty frightening stuff. But that's not all. That's not all. You see, at the three and a half year point, there is a, there's an event that occurs In Revelation chapter 9, it states that these are going to be released from the bottomless pit. There's going to be an angel that's going to come down with the keys to the bottomless pit. He's going to open it up and they will be released from that pit to again wreak havoc upon the earth as they did during the days of Noah. There are also those which are prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of men. And the number of the army of the horsemen were two hundred thousand thousand, And I heard the number of them, Revelation chapter 9, 15 to 16. hundred thousand thousand horsemen, 200 million horsemen of this angelic realm that is there to slay a third part of the men of the earth. But there are also to four angels that are actually bound together in in the Euphrates who will also wreak havoc upon the earth. But then after this, in Revelation chapter 12, we see that there is a war in heaven. There's a war going on there. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not, neither was their place found anymore in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan. Which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Revelation twelve verses seven to nine. So terrible is this time from the midpoint of this day of wrath that the text tells us in Revelation twelve, twelve, woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he has but a short time. Now I want you to consider. I want you to consider this. I want you to consider now that, you see, at the moment we're living in a time where we've got all these demonic horde bound in the, in, in, in the bottomless pit. We also have an interesting time where Satan is not um, restricted to the earth. He reports back up to heaven. He still has access to heaven. We see that in the book of Job. It was there two or 3,000 years ago. 4,000 years ago in Job's time, it is still the same case now. But there is a time coming where it's going to be shut off. Heaven is going to be closed off to Satan. The only place he's going to be dwelling together with his devilish horde will be here on earth. Then we'll have those risen up from the bottomless pit and they will be here on earth. This had never happened during the time of the flood. It was only those that are reserved in everlasting chains of darkness that were actually wreaking havoc. Not Satan and the rest of them also wreaking havoc. This time of God's wrath is a time... I can't describe it but other than a literal hell on earth. I can't think of it other than a literal hell on earth. It'll last seven years. It'll last seven years. And Christ will return at the end of that seven years with his bride, with his bride. Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16, Jude 14 and 15. You want to take a breath? Now, I've got to apologise for beginning this sermon in such a manner as that, you know, it's usually you, you wind up towards something like that and we've started off quite full on. But you see, without the glimpse into the horror of this time of wrath that is coming in that day, without a glimpse at that, we cannot comprehend for a moment an understanding of the bride being subject to it, the bride of the Son to be appointed to the wrath of the Father, Can even the concept of that make any sense to you? You see, the reason why I bring this up is because those who hold a position that believes that somehow the bride of the son is subject to the wrath of the father or is at least here during that time, they do one thing and they do it very well. They belittle the time of wrath. They don't make a big deal of it. It's not that bad. You'll be right. God's just gonna hide you in a little corner like he did in Goshen in, in Egypt. Like he did with them. He's gonna pour out his wrath on the rest of the nation, but you're gonna have this little pocket where it's gonna be sun shining, your cattles are gonna be feeding, you know, and everything's gonna be okay, the hail's not gonna come down on you there. Chapter and verse they can't give you. Can't give you chapter and verse for that because it doesn't exist in the scriptures. Yes, a remnant is going to be spared during that time, but it's not the bride. It's not the bride of Christ. We'll talk about that. The brief summary is that this day of tribulation is not just a marginal increase of tribulation that we've already experienced and always experienced. This is a time appointed, a specific time frame that will last no more than seven years. The bride of the son is not appointed to the wrath of the father. First point. This morning, revealing the Virgin Bride, revealing the Virgin Bride. It was all that the young man could do to maintain a conversation with his fellow Christian while she waited for her fiancé's plane to bring him home after a three weeks of separation. He drove her to the airport and they had an awkward conversation as she seemed quite distracted. The cause of her distraction was not revealed to him until he was at the gate with her. Once the plane was at the gate, conversation was impossible. The engaged woman stood watching, eagerly waiting for the moment when she could throw her arms around her loved one at last. As she peered down the passage, the friend with whom she had been talking earlier was heard to say, "'What a beautiful picture of the church waiting for the return.'" Of the bridegroom. What a beautiful picture of the church waiting for the return of the bridegroom. She was distracted in waiting, you see. She was distracted in waiting. What about you? What's distracting you? Are you being distracted in waiting? Are you waiting this eagerly for the groom? Are you waiting this eagerly for him, the Lord of glory, when he comes? Are you distracted by something else? Are you watching other things? Are you looking for signs? Are you looking at this world and is that just grieving your heart rather than being excited and waiting for the return of the bridegroom? You're a bride. Sorry, men, I didn't think that that bit of knowledge was appropriate to share before you came to the Lord. But you're a bride. You're a bride. You are part of the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church as a whole is known theologically as the bride of Christ. We see a picture of this. Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Three times we've got this particular parable recorded, three times. The Bible tells us that in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall everything be established. We've got this evidently there. Christ was to be taken away from them and he is also said to return for them. We saw that last week. The bridegroom is gone to prepare a place for his bride and when he returns he will receive them to himself and that where he is they may be also. As in John 14, first few verses. Turn your Bibles into that passage that we read this morning, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to see that the church is not appointed to wrath and it's going to be mentioned there specifically. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The word wrath appears 200 times in the Bible, over 201 to be specific, 201 times in 197 verses. The word wrath appears 201 times in 197 verses. And what else that's really important for you to understand is that there are probably only two passages where that wrath refers to eternity. And the context bears that out. The rest of the time, 198 times, it's either the wrath of man coming against other people or the wrath of God being poured out within a temporal time here on earth, a temporary time. okay. But only two times do we see an eternal idea. of it. That's why it's important to bring this out because there's a lot of people that say, oh, that's speaking about hell. No, the context doesn't bear witness to that. It's in the context. The first verse speaks of a time and a season. The second identifies the Lord coming as a thief in the night. This is very important. And that sudden destruction comes upon an unsuspecting world where none will escape in verse 3. Paul differentiates between the children of the day and those of the night in verse 5 and cautions the church not to sleep but to be aware, to be watch, to, to watch and to be sober in verse 6. And verse 9, for God hath not appointed us to wrath but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep we should live together with him. We see something interesting from the beginning of this passage that Paul is addressing the day of the Lord. That's the day of wrath. That's the day of vengeance of our God. And in that same day comes to the people unexpectedly, even as a thief in the night. Now, I want you to see the motive here of the thief. The reason why I want to bring this out is because a lot of people think that the thief coming in the night is a picture of the rapture of the church. It's got nothing to do with the rapture of the church. It's got nothing to do with the rapture of the church. I understand the, the, the desire for people to actually sort of really try and find the rapture in all these different passages, but it's not here. Why do we know that it's not here? Because you need to be considering the context. And we're doing this with apt to Teach, context, 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 but not just context as far as what's going on, context as far as character is concerned. We spoke about that on Saturday. Character, what's the character of a thief? Is the character of a thief benevolent or malevolent? It's not hard to work it out. Is the character of the Lord Jesus Christ benevolent or malevolent? Is it good or is it bad? It's good. What he desires for you is good. What does the thief desire for you? Bad. What does the thief come for? The text tells us in John 10.10, the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. But Jesus is come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. The thief in the night is not a picture of the rapture of the church. It is a picture of the wrath of God ready to come upon an unsuspecting world. That's that picture. That's the context. There's a poor expositional preaching that sees the rapture here and ignores the context. Paul in this passage is speaking of the wrath of God that is to be poured out upon the world. The sudden destruction that cometh upon them that travail, that as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. This is the specific time in history that I noted in the introduction. It's specifically that very day of wrath that Paul tells us, for God hath not appointed us to wrath. God has not appointed us to wrath. If we should trust this, we should trust this to be true. And the bride simply awaits for the groom to return after he had left. That it is the bride, that it is a bride, that we are a bride again. We see John, John the Baptist. He testifies to the reality of this. His own disciples come to the Lord Jesus and Jesus' response to them was simply this. Jesus said unto them, can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? John the Baptist was the first to identify Christ as the Bridegroom. So it makes sense that his disciples understood that it was Jesus who he was speaking about. He that hath the bride is the Bridegroom, said John the Baptist. But the friend of the Bridegroom which standeth and heareth him rejoiceth greatly because of the Bridegroom's voice. This my joy therefore is fulfilled, he says in John 3.19. In teaching his own disciples, Jesus gave the parable of the marriage as a picture of the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 22, 2 to 9. Just a couple of verses I'll read. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding. Go ye therefore into the highways and as many as ye shall find bid to the marriage. Do you notice that the church is the virgin bride? Christ the church is the virgin bride but it's not just in the gospel accounts we see this also in the epistles turn your Bibles to 2nd Corinthians you're in Thessalonians go back a little bit 2nd Corinthians chapter 11 it's the same understanding that is understood by the apostles who are speaking about the church and Paul, here, broken for a wayward church and desiring to strengthen them, they're taken away in their own deception. And he says there in Second Corinthians 11 verse 2, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Do you notice the church is a bride? The church is a bride. Our famous passage in Ephesians chapter five, that's preached on often, a famous passage. It likens that our own marriage relationships is likened to Christ and the church. For after all of Paul, all that Paul has spoken about, he identifies that a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. In verse thirty one, and then he says in verse thirty two. For this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Again, do you see that? This is where that theological term, the bride of Christ, which you don't find in the scriptures, that phrase, the bride of Christ, it's just there as a a theological premise. Do you know the word Trinity doesn't appear in the scriptures? You know that? So the word Trinity isn't in 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 the Bible. The word the bride of Christ isn't in the Bible. The word rapture is not in the Bible. The word Bible isn't in the Bible. They're a general understanding of these theological things that we take directly out of the scriptures. But then what do we say about Revelation nineteen seven? Let us be glad and rejoice and give honour to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. Revelation 21, 9. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. Revelation 22, 17. And the spirit and the bride say, come. Let him that heareth say, come. Let him that is athirst come. Whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. This is the bride of the living Christ. And what we have revealed in the scriptures is the virgin bride of the son of God. Now, if this is true, if this is true, How can it be possible that the bride could be presented to the father other than in perfect, beauty, white and gorgeous before the father? But no, there are individuals who would actually say to you that the church has got to go through the tribulation. And when the son presents his battered wife to the father, she's black and blue and bloody. It's not a picture of the virgin bride. The bride of the son is not appointed to the wrath of the father. Now I want you to contrast the virgin bride of Christ to the adulterous wife of God. Now we're revealing, we've revealed the virgin bride. Yes, we've revealed the virgin bride of the son. Now we're going to remember the adulterous wife of God. There are two distinct peoples in the Bible. We have the Jews and the Gentiles. We have two distinct peoples and we run afoul of attributing the one with the other. We can't look also with regards to the church and the Jews as being conflated one with another. Okay? Yeah. They are not joined, they are, separate. they are separate peoples within the scriptures and we see that plainly. One of the greatest areas that we find today is embedded in what is a lazy conflation of mixing these two together. That which God has clearly presented in the Bible is separated. The Roman Catholic Church has long ago melted the Church into ancient Israel in what is known commonly as replacement theology. Have you ever heard that phrase? Replacement theology? Okay, so the the church replaces Israel. Okay, it's also known as supersessionism, for those a little bit more technical among you. Or those I just like saying big words, makes me look smarter, you know. Israel has been replaced by the church, basically. Israel has been replaced by the church. Sadly, the Protestants that came out of Roman Catholicism never corrected this error. See, at the time when they came out, their only concern was soteriology or salvation, the doctrine of salvation. The church believed that it's through the church and the Protestants believed that it was actually through Christ, through the gospel, through the word of God. But they still hold on to this idea and they actually refer to the same idea as covenantalism. Have you ever heard that expression? Replacement theology, covenantalism. Covenantalism is holding on to the same covenants. The covenants are then replaced and given to the church. And what they do is they misapply Acts 7.38 in their justification. When the martyr Stephen referred to the church in the wilderness, he was referring to a gathering. He was referring to an assembly. You all know that the church also means assembly. That's what's ecclesia. In the Greek, it means assembly, simply. But not the bride. It's not the bride. The faithful common man who believed that the Lord wrote plainly and wrote for them to be able to understand. The Old Testament shows distinct people groups, the Jew and the Gentile. The New Testament church, however, doesn't have those people groups. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus, Galatians 3.28. The New Testament shows the church as the virgin bride of Christ. The Old Testament shows Israel as the adulterous wife of God. And it doesn't take much scripture to be reading in the Old Testament to see it displayed this way. Jeremiah. Have a look there with me. Jeremiah chapter 3. In the middle of your Bibles and turn right. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. One of the major prophets. He's also known as the weeping prophet. Jeremiah was there during the time of the taking away of Israel into captivity he warned about it beforehand he told them they'll be in captivity for 70 years and he was still there Jeremiah chapter 3 the first couple of verses they say if a man put away his wife and she go from him and become another man's shall he return unto her again shall not that land be greatly polluted but thou hast played the harlot with many lovers yet return again to me saith the Lord The text goes on to refer to her behaviour as whoredoms in verse 2. Have a look at verses 20 to 21, or verse 20. Jeremiah 3, verse 20, he says, Surely as a wife treacherously departeth from her husband, so have ye dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, saith the Lord. Now we can continue on the entirety of Ezekiel, which is... So move forward two more books. Lamentations. Ezekiel, go to chapter sixteen. There, Ezekiel sixteen, uh, 15, Ezekiel sixteen, and verses fifteen and sixteen. The whole chapter deals with Israel and Judah as adulterous, as an adulterous, fornicating wife. Okay, the entire chapter, but we can consider just these two verses. We'll give you the basic summary of it. Ezekiel sixteen fifteen. But thou didst trust in thine own beauty and playedest the harlot because of thy renown and pouredest out thy fornications on every one that passeth by. His it was. And of thy garments thou didst take and deckest thy high places with diverse colors and playedest the harlot thereupon. The like thing shall not come, neither shall it be. This is a picture of the adulterous wife of Yahweh, the adulterous wife of God. Who is it? It's not the church. It's Israel. It's Israel. In the latter portion of Isaiah, it brings about an understanding that the, the Israel will return back to God. It will return back to God, but meanwhile, it is adulterous. He says in Isaiah 54, Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that did not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. In Isaiah 54, five, it says, For thy maker is thine husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. And it goes on. We see God referring to the nation as his wife. It's not difficult to see. It's not difficult to recognize this is a different woman. This is a different wife. This is a different individual. It's not distinct. Is this not distinct from the virgin bride of Christ? She's distinct. But she won't be returned until a remnant survives. Until the remnant survives the outpouring of God's wrath upon her and upon the world. It'll be a time of trouble this time. Even of Jacob's trouble. Turn your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 30. So you're in Ezekiel, go back again to Jeremiah chapter 30. And it speaks about that day. The day of wrath that we've been speaking about earlier. It's interesting here because we don't see the bride during that day of wrath. We can't even conceive of the bride being there. Yet, here we see the adulterous wife right in the midst of it. It says there in verse 7, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. You see the identifier? That's the identifying mark. There's no day before it or after it. It is even the time of whose trouble? Jacob's trouble. Who's Jacob? Jacob is Israel, Jacob is Israel, but he shall be saved out of it. So we see a remnant of the wife being saved out of it. This is the day, this is the hour, this is the year, this is the month that Jesus spoke of in the Olivet Discourse. Matthew chapter 24 and 25, Mark 13 and Luke 21. That's that time. The Olivet Discourse is about this time frame this day of trouble, this day of vengeance of our God. Now what we see as we read those chapters, remembering that the church is not in existence when Jesus actually preached the Olivet Discourse. The church didn't exist until Acts chapter 2. So it's not the bride of the son that's appointed to the wrath of the father. But there's two people that are. The first is the adulterous wife. The second is the heathen. In fact... The time of Jacob's trouble is also known as the time of the heathen. It's their day as well. Brings me to the next point, the time of the heathen. Ezekiel chapter 30, have a look there with me. Ezekiel chapter 30. Verses 1 to 3. The word, just about there, Ezekiel chapter 30, verses 1 to 3. The word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, Son of man, prophesy and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Howl ye, woe worth the day, for the day is near, even the day of the Lord is near, a cloudy day. It shall be the time of the heathen. The time of the heathen. This day of of wrath that the Bible talks about is a day that is appointed for two people groups. It's a day that is appointed for Jacob because Israel shall also be involved in that day. And there's a day of the heathen. Three quarters of the heathen are going to die during this time. Two thirds of Israel are going to die during this time, but a remnant shall be saved. It'll be that remnant together with the remnant of the heathen who are now believers. They've come as believing Christians or believers in the Lord. They will be the ones who will repopulate the earth during the time of the millennial kingdom. But the Lord will return with his bride. It goes on elsewhere. Psalm 110 verses 5 and 6, The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. And he shall wound their heads over many countries. Isaiah 24, it says, And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall punish the hosts of the high ones that are on high and the kings of the earth upon the earth. In chapter 34, he says, "Come near ye nations, to hear and hearken, ye people, let the earth hear, and all that is therein, the world and all things that come forth of it, for the indignation of the Lord is upon all nations and his fury upon their, all their armies. He hath utterly destroyed them, he hath delivered them to the slaughter. it says there in Isaiah 34 verses one to five. Joel speaks about this. he says, "Assemble yourselves and come, all ye heathen, and gather yourselves together round about." the cause thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord, let the heathen be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat; for there will I sit to judge the heathen round about. This is the day of the Lord. the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision, He says, the sun and the moon shall be darkened, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. The Lord shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth shall shake, and the Lord. Will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. Pretty incredible stuff, isn't it? When you you look at this, this is incredible stuff. Does it make sense to you for the bride to be here during that time? We are to watch. We are to watch because he's coming. He's coming. He's coming soon. We are to watch. We are to watch with bated breath. We are to be distracted by watching for the Lord. We are not to be distracted by the world. We recognize, yes, the things that are going on in the world, and we see this time that's appointed coming on the horizon. We see it, but that's not where our focus needs to be, beloved. What's our focus need to be? What do we need to be doing? That's my last point. How the bride awaits. How the Bride Awaits for the Groom. Have a look at what it says. How the Bride Awaits for the Groom. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. And we'll move through that New Testament portion in this direction. Beginning at Romans 13. Verse 11. Paul writes here and he says, And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. You recognize that? Do you see that? Do you see that the night is far spent? The night is fast spent. Do you recognize the good news here that the day is at hand? What comes after the night? Day. Okay? After the night comes the day. And that's what we're looking forward to. Now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. What does that that mean? Well, the realization of our salvation. You know, we are saved positionally, but the realisation, the 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 reception of that purchased possession, what Jesus has paid for with his blood, that's going to be identified, recognized and evident. It's going to be right there. Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Well, how should we live? Let's therefore cast off the works of darkness. Whatever, whatever it is that you're entertaining, whatever you, especially your mental state, whatever your focus is on, if your God is money, then you need to abandon that. You need to abandon that. Do your work. Work with your own hands. Be diligent in the things that you do that you might have to give to those who have need of it. Beloved, that's why we work. We work in order to retain and give, to be able to give to those who have need of it. Do your work. Live your life. Get married. Have children. Have children. Have children, you know. Be married. Enjoy your life. Make houses and build them and inhabit them and grow your gardens and do the things that you love to do. But have your focus, have your focus looking for the return of Christ, you know. Live your life in joy in expectation of the reception of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 7. So that you come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, That ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You have gifts. The Lord tells us that we've been given gifts, that we've been blessed with abilities, something that separates us, something that's unique, uniquely yours. There's something about you, something very unique about you that God has a purpose for him to continue doing that work until he comes so use those gifts you're not behind in any gift seek after the Lord with respect to it he'll he'll be able to make that burden for you to give you an understanding of what it is that your desire is to do and to be for the Lord waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ Philippians chapter 3 have a look there Philippians chapter 3 Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20 and 21, two verses, we'll have a look at there. Paul writes and says, for our, Paul's, just I want you to keep in mind, this is one of the prison epistles, so he's writing this from a prison cell, I don't think any of you are in a prison cell, he is writing this from a prison cell, have a look what he writes, for our conversation is in heaven from whence also we look for the savior the lord jesus christ who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself for our conversation we understood before when we look at the word conversation it's not manner of speaking it's manner of life It's manner of life. Why? Because your manner of life communicates. That's why it's referred to as conversation. Your manner of life communicates to all people and it communicates to the point that Peter can refer to it and say, to be ready to give an answer for all people who asks you of the hope that is in you. You have a manner of life and it communicates heaven. It communicates heaven. Let our conversation, for our conversation is in heaven For whence we also look for the Saviour expectantly. We're looking for Him. We're waiting for Him. We're watching for Him to come. We're living our life in complete expectation that the Lord can come any moment. Any moment. Any moment. Did I say any moment? Any moment. Like now. Maybe now. Okay, okay. Maybe now. Could be now. But the thing is, it could be, you know. That's the exciting part about it. It could be. It literally could be. It could be before I finish this sermon. He could come any moment and we need to be living expectantly, waiting for the Lord to come. Turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians. How are we to live? 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul here speaks about speaks to the Thessalonians and he's speaking about their witness to all people far and wide. In verse 8, he says, For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and in Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God would spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything, For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Imagine it said that as Sumbri. First Sumbri. First Thessalonians. First Sumbrianians. From you came forth that faith, from you came forth that testimony, so that we had no other witness required of us other than when we came to you and you believed the testimony of Christ and your faith exploded, it was evident to all the world far and wide. Imagine that, imagine that's the life that you're living, that's how you are to wait for Christ you are to wait for Christ as a picture of Christ to all the world who needs Christ. Have a look at verses 15 to 18. He says, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. We're not going to prevent them. We're not going to prevent them that are asleep. Those who are already dead and in the grave, we're not going to prevent them. We're not going to go before them. The word prevent, remember I mentioned to you, pre, go before. It means go before. We're not going to go before them. They're going to go first and we're going to meet them in the clouds. We're going to meet them in the air. And so are we ever going to be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another with these words. Think about the post-tribulationalist. You're going to go through literal hell on earth. You're going to be beaten black and blue. A lot of you are going to die. You're going to witness and watch your family die. Some of you are going to be taken before these rulers. You're going to watch them be decapitated. You're not going to be able to do anything. You're not going to be able to buy. You're not going to be able to sell unless you have the mark of the beast. But because you are the Lord's, you're going to restrict yourself from that. So you're probably going to starve. You're going to be tortured, there's going to be so many vile things that are going to happen to you, but Jesus is coming and you're going to meet him. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. You get the point, yeah? It's a pretty hard one to picture. Titus chapter 2, as we close this message this morning for you. Titus chapter 2, you have to turn there, you have to turn there. It's moving in the same direction, moving forward. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. A few verses we'll read there. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, And godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. How? How do we wait? How does the bride wait? We wait doing good works. We wait being blameless in this world. We wait being faithful, being obedient, being just before the eyes of God, even though we have godless rulers. We don't sit here beating our chest over our present rights that are being infringed. We don't sit here worrying about those sort of things. We don't sit here saying, oh, I'm not going to go into that store without a mask on, even though they don't want me in there with it. We don't see they're worrying about these sort of things. We are blameless before God because we're waiting for the Savior. We're waiting for the Savior. We're waiting for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That needs to be our distraction. That's what we're focusing on. We're not focusing on the stupidity that's going on in, the, in this world. If that was a condition of life, then so be it. Should you care? Really, should you care? In the scheme of everything that we have to look forward to, should you care? And beloved, if for one reason or another you're going to scan a QR code that's going to go to the government and they're going to come and take you at your house because they suspect you might have been with somebody that had the flu and they're going to put you into a prison camp as a result of that, should you care? I'm saying that to challenge you, beloved, in all seriousness. If the Lord wants you there because there's a particular individual that needs to hear the gospel, should you not be faithful? They haven't told you not to preach the gospel, they tell me not to preach the gospel. I say, I'm sorry, I can't help you with that. You know, there's pastors in Canada who are in prison because they refuse not to preach the gospel. Well, then they put them in prison. Now they've got a captive audience to preach the gospel to. Do you know what I mean? There are things that we are to be diligently disobedient with, and that is respect to the gospel of Christ. But there are preachers, and I'm sorry, I'm not happy with Jack Hibbs at the moment. Jack Hibbs, who I look up to, and I think he's a good man and a godly man, but he's actually teaching a false doctrine. We are to be submitted to the government. We'll talk more about this when we get to to Romans 13. Yes, we are to meet. Yes, we are to preach the gospel of Christ, and that cannot be infringed upon. And so be it, we continue doing that. But when it comes to everything else, no, I'm sorry. That's not chapter and verse. We are to live godly for the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to be blameless. We are to be continually looking forward to that blessed hope. We are to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. What are we looking forward to when we're advancing all our freedoms? Worldly lusts. Worldly lusts. We're looking for something that... The vast majority of the church has never had. Thousands of years, 2,000 years. How many years has the church had this sort of freedom that we've enjoyed for the last 100 or 200 years? Not long. Not long, what? We've got 10% of the years we've had this freedom. No, the rest of the church hasn't had this freedom. They're not able to live righteously and godly in Christ Jesus. Think about it. He's writing to Titus. James 5, Be patient, therefore, brethren. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he receive the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. You can look that up yourself. It's James chapter 5. Verses 7 to 11. Last verse I'm going to read. And it's Jude 17. Jude 17 to 25. Jude's only got one chapter. It's one of the last ones just before the book of Revelation. Jude 17, but beloved... Remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How that they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. These be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the spirit. But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And of some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God our Saviour, be glory and majesty Dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. Just as the fiance in our introduction, can we be distracted in waiting? Let's be distracted in waiting for the Lord. He's coming. Maybe now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, dear Lord, for the joy of the Lord, the blessings that you have given us, the instructions that you have put forward before us, the challenges indeed. Indeed, there are challenges in this, dear Lord. Challenges, dear Father, that we need to humble ourselves because we have been exalting the flesh. But we need to challenge ourselves, dear Lord, that we would live godly in Christ Jesus, preaching the wonderful gospel of Christ, that we may indeed be able to save some, pulling them out of the fire. I pray, dear Lord, that our witness will be a godly witness right up until the day that you come for us and the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is in every way our blessed hope. Watch over us, dear Lord. Let us live in anticipation and glorify your name. Be with us until then. If you should tarry, dear Father, help us grow, continuing in our, in our love one toward another, in our fellowship and in our distraction in waiting for you, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.